The reading today is from Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their cities. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to, to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. a scary story. Multiple murders, a chilling ending, not unlike the Grimm's Grimmest, the ones where people are hacked to death, to pieces, and roasted and eaten. It has that sort of folktale-ish rhythm to it. The king invites the people to the wedding feast three times. Things tend to go in threes in these sort of stories. Three sons, three warnings, three bears, three little piggies. But usually the third time is sort of the solution. The third son follows the advice of the troll, finally thank God. The third pig builds his house of bricks. But in this grim story, the third invite does, it, does result in a filled banquet hall. But it's not like everything is okay then and safe, and good, and nice. The king spots one guest without a proper robe, and he ties him up and throws him into the outer darkness where there is nothing but the sound of weeping and gnashing teeth. Gnashing teeth. Does that make you think of hungry monsters waiting to eat people? Or is that just me? actually really certain what Jesus was up to with this parable or Matthew with his weird editing. But I don't think that either of them meant to be secretly telling us in some sort of coded way what God is really like. Like they didn't mean for the church to take this king 
and make them their god. This sort of petty king who's so insulted and slighted if anybody doesn't accept his invitation that he'll murder them and burn everything down. And even after all that ma'am and murder, even if you end up at his banquet, if you aren't dressed right, you don't prepare properly, if there's something not right about you, he will only throw you out of his party. He won't only throw you out of his party, but he will bind your hands and bind your feet and throw you into the terrible, deep, hopeless darkness forever. Oddly enough, a lot of people sort of do make this into their image of God. I learned to fear this God as a child in a fundamentalist Sunday school. And so I invited him into my heart. Isn't that a weird thing to do? And it took me years to get him out of there. This is a hard parable. And it's the kind of story you can read a lot of different ways depending on what you have on your mind. Martin Luther read it like the people who are invited to the wedding banquet but refuse the invitation and kill the king's servants. Well, that's the Pope and the Pope's people, the Papists. The wedding garment is Christ, which is put on by faith. The Pope doesn't even come close to having the wedding garment on, according to Luther. Luther knows the story is really bad, but he finds a way to read it that works for him. He aims it at the people who he thinks are worthy of his vitriol. People that he thinks are unfaithful and ungrateful. Very often this story has been read as if it was aimed against the Jewish people. The people invited to the king's party were the Jews. They refused the invitation, so God invites the Gentiles. But still, even if you're a Gentile, don't relax at all because you still have to be wearing the right thing. Be cloaked in holiness, Wesley says. Or it'll be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the forever darkless, dark, hopeless pit for you. Like God is angry when slighted, murderous even. So be careful. I think that there are more than just a couple reasons to think those aren't the best ways to read the story. Luke has a version of this parable, but there's no king in it. There's no king at all. There's just this man who does at one point get a little bit angry, but he doesn't kill anyone. And the point in the end is that the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind get to come to the banquet instead of the more socially acceptable people who were first invited. And there's nothing about anybody wearing the wrong thing and getting thrown and no gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's hardly the same story, but it is the same story. How you play the characters makes an enormous difference. There's also a version of this parable in the Gospel of Thomas. And in that version, there's no king. There's just this guy that is totally chill, no anger. Everyone is just too busy doing business to come to the party. So in the end, the parable says, the business people and the merchants will not enter the place of my father. Interesting take. People use stories to get different points across. The same story is told different ways, can mean different things. People do this constantly. They've been doing it forever. 
Francis and the most popular version of Red Riding Hood. We all know this story, of course. She's this sort of naive girl who's seduced by a wolf, a wolf who's pretending to be her grandma. And in the end, Red Riding Hood, Red Riding Hood is saved by this kind woodcutter man. It's a little bit chauvinistic. But in some versions, Red Riding Hood isn't naive at all. She totally sees the wolf's disguise from the beginning, and she escapes without help from any man. Some versions of Red Riding Hood are thought to come out of the actual genuine risk of wolves in the wilderness. Some versions are thought to be about the changing of the seasons. The Red Hood could represent the sun fading, and then the black, scary wolf swallows the sun. So it's sort of a coming of winter tale. Some say it's a story of rape. Some say it's a sexual awakening. You know, you put a different slant on a story. You change up the characters a little. The interpretations can be wildly, wildly different. This is how stories work. So it really matters how we read them. And it really matters how we tell them. Matthew definitely tweaks his parable. It's like grotesquely violent compared to the other versions we know. I mean, is that because Matthew just really wanted to stress how violent the kingdom of God is? Probably not, since he spends a lot of his book contrasting the Roman Empire in its violent ways to the kingdom of God and its nonviolent ways. I mean, if you just read this next to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew spends a lot of time working on this image of the kingdom of God that is something so different and surprising and other and sweeter and more beautiful and more hopeful than the kingdom of Caesar. It's the poor, not the king. It's the merciful, not the vengeful. It's the meek, not the cruel, easily slighted tyrant that define the kingdom of God. The main character of Matthew's gospel is Jesus. Jesus never grasped for power. When Peter asks how often he should forgive his brothers, Jesus doesn't say three times and then kill them. He says many, many times. Mercy is key. Jesus is slighted mocked, betrayed. He goes on to die a violent death without any retaliation whatsoever. The king of this parable is such a different character than Jesus. I think I might like going to a party that Jesus threw. But who would want to go to this king's party? He's scary and violent. He's petty and arbitrarily cruel. Still, people don't normally refuse an offer from a king. That's the thing. An invitation from a king is not really an invitation. It's more like an offer that you can't refuse. It's an order. You just don't refuse a king's invitation. Even an awful king, like Herod the Great, who plays a bigger role in Matthew than in any other gospel. Herod had little babies slaughtered. Little babies slaughtered, according to Matthew. When the wise men came asking where the 
they could find the new king of the Jews, Herod felt overlooked. And so he flew into a furious rage, Matthew says, and killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were under two. It's possible that Matthew made that story up about the slaughter of the innocents. There's no other historical record of it. But that sort of shows that Matthew is pressing a point. Kings are not to be trusted. They are violent. Matthew doesn't seem to like them. And for good reason. Herod the Great, by all accounts, was an outrageously violent man. He had his own wife and his own sons executed. When he was dying, he was afraid that no one would grieve at his funeral, so he gave orders to people to round up more popular men and execute him on that day so that someone would cry on the day of his death. So his grave might not be without the tribute of tears, is how Josephus puts it. Thankfully, no one carried out that horrible order, and the people celebrated on the day of the death of the king. Herod buddied up to Caesar as much as possible, but even Caesar, who was plenty violent himself, said of Herod, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son, the king. So the characters in this story refuse the invitation of a king, To me, that doesn't make them seem ungrateful. It makes them seem brave. I mean, I feel just a little bit sorry for the king that no one wants to come to his party, but hardly. He's a bully. Maybe the people had secretly agreed to boycott the banquet as an act of resistance. Maybe revolution was in the air. Some of the original hearers of the story must have been attracted to the characters that refuse to jump when the king calls. Their kings were minions of the Roman Empire. And plus, the way of God's people in Scripture had always been to resist the summons of worldly power. Would Moses have gone to the Pharaoh's palace to eat his fatted calf? I like the resistance. But then the rebels disappoint. They treat the king's slaves shamefully and kill them. No one looks very good in the story. It's a familiar one, and I hate it. It's so disappointing when the revolutionaries take on the methods of empire, execute the former regime. You just want so badly for them to behave better than that. You so badly want them to have mercy, don't you? I want the resistance to be different than the oppressor. Isn't that the point? But they hardly ever are. But still, the king retaliates explosively. He escalates the violence dramatically. The rebels may have killed a couple people in this story. The king sends in the army, the troops, overkills, undoubtedly. Completely tortures the whole town, burns the rebel city down to the ground. And those left alive after the murderous rampage, walking the streets amidst the wreckage, are rounded up for this banquet. Somehow, this doesn't seem like a fun time to me. Somehow I suspect that that banquet hall wasn't really full of people laughing and dancing. I think it was full of people 
sitting stiffly in their chairs, afraid. Afraid not to eat, but too scared to eat. Choking down the king's fatted calf, down their tight throats, ready to see blood spill across the roast of lamb when the king is somehow slighted. And then it happens, of course. Someone is not paying the king proper respect. They dare not to wear a wedding robe. I mean, how could anyone have dressed properly? The king just burned down their cities and killed their neighbors. But the king setters his sights on this one. This one becomes the sacrificial, speechless victim. The king says many are called, but few are chosen. And here, just this one is chosen. This one is prepared like a lamb for slaughter. And does that somehow make the rest of the banquet go well? Does that somehow relieve the tension? It does sound like a story about, the about how the empire works. You identify a scapegoat, and then we can all come together against it. Most of the time, though, Matthew works hard to show that the kingdom doesn't work like the empire works. If there really even is anything that could be called a king in God's kingdom, it would look like Jesus. Unusual for a king. He doesn't seem to have a need for people to regard him highly. He doesn't seem to crave attention or power. Jesus is nothing like Herod or Caesar. Matthew pushes it in case we haven't picked that up. Jesus tells this parable right after he tells the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which Matthew quotes scripture to describe. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on an ass. Very humble. So people through the history of interpretation have been trying to figure out who the man with the robe is in this parable. We who fail to be holy, the Pope, the people you don't think are good, the people you think are bad. Well, how about the one who is mocked and tortured so that we might quit mocking and torturing? Jesus is stripped of his garments in the end. I mean, isn't there some story where mercy wins in the end? Where the resistance is truly, 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 utterly different than the oppressor. Matthew believes that Jesus is the revelation of God in the world. Jesus, not the enraged, vengeful, retaliatory, king in the parable. Yet so much of the Christianity I grew up in got its image of God from these scary parables, based its image of God on this angry, violent, vengeful king. Why would anyone gravitate toward making that tyrant their God? Does it say something about us? Does it say something about who we normally serve? What kind of things we make our gods, who we follow? We do it all the time. We follow Caesars. We follow the powerful. We believe in the power.
awful. Maybe it's hard to believe in the way of Jesus. It's strange. This is kind of a strange feast. It's sort of humble and very small. This tiny piece of bread that you tear from a common loaf and then dip into grape juice. Being fed Jesus. May that free us somehow to quit following kings. 